Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is a friend and uh, just a really incredible guest. I mean, this is such a great conversation. Uh, joining me today is Dr. Russell Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy or Russ, uh, Russell is a neuroscientist. Uh, he's a medical doctor. He's a corporate speaker and entertainer uh, and a certified yoga teacher. So uh, his personal qualifications, he's, he's listed as the anxiety MD. And we're going to talk much more than just anxiety today. You can think about this podcast episode as being all about stress relief, which <laughs> I feel like is such a, such a huge conversation and topic today. Uh, so he's he's called the anxiety MD because he's lived with anxiety for most of his life and has devoted his entire career to helping others get out of the hole uh, that he's actually found himself in in the past for a very long time. So he believes that there's no better teacher than the one that there has, you know, the, than the person that has really been able to go through it, that has a medical training for it, that understands the neurology and the neuroscience behind it. So, uh, you know, Russell's anxiety started when he was quite young and he, he grew up with a, a really a severely mentally ill father, which we're going to dive into, uh, who would lapse, his father would lapse into psych, psychotic depression and high states of anxiety. And it would, it really was fragmenting for him to the point that he developed a fairly severe anxiety disorder, even as a doctor. So, uh, so Russ actually shares a bit about his experience in the beginning, uh, you know, going, growing up in this, in this environment that so many of us have grown up in, you know, so many people grow up with one or two parents that are highly volatile. Um, they, they don't always have to, you know, showcase these, um, psychotic, depressive, or, or high anxiety states, but they might be very controlling or they might be abusive. So, uh, so he grew up in this type of environment that was very volatile, very unpredictable, and, and very chaotic. And because of that, it produced this high state of anxiety with him and high stress. And so we talk a little bit about his personal journey, how that came about, how that translated into his career. And then we actually dive really right into the neuroscience behind stress. And we talk about stress in the brain, stress in the body, uh, the impact of stress in our everyday life, how it impacts our ability to make choices, how it impacts the direction of our life, how it impacts our relationships. And then, um, you know, within sprinkled within the podcast and at the end of the podcast, Russ actually gives Dr. Russell gives some very specific activities, some very specific exercises that you can do to actually start to reduce stress in your life, to actually start to find more calm and peace uh, within your everyday experience and existence. And these are really simple exercises. Uh, so he has he really combines the practicality. Uh, he it, it combines the neurology. So we're going to talk about things like the default mode network and the uh, vagal, the the vagus nerve. A little bit about polyvagal theory. So uh, it's it's a really a packed episode. I hope you have a pen and paper with you or the ability to take some notes so you can write down the exercises uh, and links for uh, Dr. Russell's. Uh, website, as always, will be in the show notes. So just a quick reminder, uh, if you know somebody that's struggling with anxiety or high amounts of stress, definitely share this podcast with them because this is one of the most valuable conversations that I think I've ever had on on this topic, on the topic of stress. And I think that we all deal with it to some degree, but obviously some people struggle more. Your Your partner might be struggling with this. Your boss might be struggling with this. So Definitely share this episode with somebody as it can be incredibly impactful. Uh, I know that I learned a lot from this episode as well. So without any further delay or ado, uh, for all the men that are out there, don't forget to head on over to Facebook and join the Man Talks community. You can find it at Man Talks uh, on the Man Talks website or facebook.com forward slash Man Talks dash community. And uh, we have an incredible group of men from all over the world who support each other in their relationships, in their businesses, in their health, in their finances, and it's completely free. So I hope to see you in there. Uh, I post daily content in there and support all the men that are in there. So without further delay, uh, please welcome Dr. Russell Kennedy. Thank you, Connor. It's so great to be here. Really, really, really is. 
Yeah, likewise. I'm, you know, it's, it's been interesting. I'm, I actually am really, really excited about this conversation because you've actually been a part of the man talks community for, for quite a while now. And, uh, I always see you interacting. Your, your, your responses are always incredibly thoughtful. And, uh, and, and so I'm really excited to have you on the show today because you really specialize in a few different fields that I, am fascinated about have no degree in but but it really I'm, I'm i'm really excited to geek out about and i think the listeners will be excited to geek out uh, uh, with us as well oh, i hope so well I, I won't get too deep into the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis or anything like that as far as neuroscience goes. <laughs> but, but i am going to bring in some neuroscience concepts because i think you know what most of my patients tell me is that i have this ability to take these complex matters and translate them into something they can understand. And I hope that I can give your listeners some really good practical tips that they can use to help with their anxiety and stress today, like instantly. So, so really looking forward to this, man, really looking forward to it. Love it. Love it. Well, let's, uh, let's dive straight in, in the, in the way that we, that, that I always do, which is by starting off the question, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Oh man. Okay. Um, well, I, I think probably the defining moment of my life was when I was about 12 years old. I lived in Victoria, British Columbia, which I've moved back to now. And I'm sitting on my bed looking out the window, and they are loading my father into the ambulance to take him to psychiatric intensive care for the umpteen time. I, I can't remember how many times it was. And my father was schizophrenic and bipolar, which is a, you know, one of them on its own is hard enough. So, my household would get thrown into disarray and chaos a number of times. And that's why I myself developed an anxiety disorder. And that's also why I became a doctor. But I remember looking out the window and going, oh, man, one day, I'm going to make this mean something. One day, this is going to be his suffering and my suffering and our family's suffering is really I'm going to change this. I'm going to change it so that I take all this negative emotional energy and try and turn it into something positive. And that's why I became an MD. And that's why I really focused on neuroscience and anxiety because I felt so helpless and powerless to help him at the time. And I just don't want people to have to suffer like he did. I don't want people to have to suffer like I did. So that's been my motivation. That's probably been my defining story is just looking out that window and going, you know, one day I'm going to make this mean something. I like it. I like it. And I appreciate you sharing that story because I think, you know, anytime that, that we grow up in a household that has any form of, of trauma or traumatic experiences, you know, or, or an environment that really is not how we would ideally like it to be, uh, it, it does test our character. And, and I know that, you know, these types of, these types of disorders like schizophrenia and, uh, and I think, bipolar. did you say bipolar? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they're, they are in, in many ways, um, a, a byproduct of a, oftentimes a neurological disorder, but there, a lot of research uh, is starting to show that they're also a, a product of their environment. And so how, I'm, I'm just curious if we can just, you know, maybe uh, poking in and around this field a little bit to understand disorders a little bit, because I think oftentimes we just label them as a neurochemical or a neurological disease and, and we prescribe drugs and we sort of move on from there. Uh, and we, and we don't look at the environment. We just look at the, the environment within the body, but not the environment that the body is in. And so I'm curious if you can give us some some detail and unpack the, the the sort of two sides or the whatever sides you see as being an impact to these types of disease and how much of a role the environment actually plays in creating some of these diseases and disorders. Well, there is the adverse childhood events study, and that showed that people with adverse childhood events typically will show up with some form of chronic illness later on in life if they don't deal with it. Now, things like schizophrenia and bipolar, like the really severe psychotic hallucination type things, I think are more neurochemical. But I think like anything, our genes have that predisposition or susceptibility. And if our environment is is very nourishing and enriching, it's it's less likely that those genes will actually manifest into schizophrenia or bipolar. But if you do have that predisposition to 
schizophrenia, bipolar, any significant mental illness, and you're also exposed to a lot of trauma in childhood, you know, there's, there's argument to say that there is methylation of the genes. The genes don't code properly. They start going into a protective mode rather than a mode that would foster your development and makes you more likely to develop these significant psychological disorders later on. I know that my father, uh, amazingly, was born in 1934, and he apparently, now this is the story, and I'm, I tend to believe it because I've had it from a different, many different sources, that he weighed a pound and a half at birth. A pound, in 1934, where we had no uh, neonatal ICU, we had none of this fancy stuff, his mother brought him home in a shoebox and said she could get her wedding ring up to his shoulder. Now he, so I think he started off not having, well, maybe looking at it a different way, maybe he had really powerful genes because he actually survived. And I think what we do these days is we label people with these illnesses, especially in medicine. Medicine is a, is a very labeling, very linear thinking field. And when we label people with these disorders, we get a... We, we put a stigma on them because all stigma is is based in fear because we're just so afraid. And and one of the reasons I developed an anxiety disorder myself was because I looked at my father and said, holy geez, I hope this doesn't happen to me. So getting back to your original question, I think that these these disorders, we have a predisposition for them. And if you're grown up in, in a very nurturing environment, you're less likely to manifest those genes. But if you grow up in an environment where there are significant adverse childhood events, those genes are much more likely to manifest. Now, that's not to say that we can't do anything about them as you get older, but it just shows you the role of parenting and the role of bonding and the role of attachment. You know, I'm a big fan of Dr. Gordon Neufeld, who's a developmental psychologist, and just the role of secure attachment in protecting from later illness is massive. But that's not to say that we can't learn attachment as we get older that will reinstitute that level of protection that we could have that we could have gotten when we were younger. It may not be as perfect as growing up in a healthy, happy, normal, whatever healthy, happy, normal family is. I don't think it exists, but in that environment, you know, if we can provide that sense of secure attachment for ourselves we can heal a lot of our emotional pain and certainly a lot of physical pain. I've seen a lot of people with arthritic conditions or chronic pain learn how to attach and their pain disappears. So I, I, that's a meandering, a long meandering answer there, Connor, but that's about, you know, that's sometimes how my brain works. I just start going off in different directions. So I hope that. No, no, that's, that's great. No, it's, that's so good. And I, you know, I think I even look at my, at my own life and you know, how, emotional, emotional pain and avoidance and, and, uh, you know, high levels of stress and anxiety back in the day when I was a classical singer, you know, and I would have this like, you know, so, sometimes it was like really challenging anxieties that would come up and stress. And I'd have nightmares about, you know, forgetting lines and parts and, you know, those moments being on stage when I was dreaming, I would, I would dream about being on stage and have these moments and, and how that would manifest because I didn't know how to deal with it properly. How it would manifest was oftentimes physically. And I would get sick quite often, uh, even though I took care of myself and, and my body in, in a very similar degree that I do now. Uh, and I seem to have like chronic problems, like chronic shoulder problem, chronic neck problem, chronic, you know, sinus problems. And, and it was funny how, you know, when I, when I changed out of that space, there was also a bunch of other stuff going on in my life in, in the background, uh, not just the stress from, from singing, uh, from my career. But, but when I changed my environment over the course of a year or two, those things all started to slowly fade away and, and disappear. And so I've always had this sort of uh, different understanding of how important the environment is simply because of, of my own issues. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious for some people that, that might be out there listening is like, is the environment, do you address the environment first? Do you address the sort of the, the, the body or neurological issues first? Like from a, from a doctor's perspective, where, where do people start? Well, I, I'm a fairly atypical physician. You know, I lived for a while in India at a temple there. I've studied the work of Byron Katie. 
Uh, I can get pretty woo-woo sometimes. Uh, Mark Willen, who wrote the book, It Didn't Start With You, all about family constellations, all about inherited family trauma, is a friend of mine. So I'm a little, I'm a little more woo than most doctors, but I also have this hardcore neuroscience thing that runs through me. So I, I like to think that I can kind of blend both of them together. So where do you start? Well, you start in the moment is where you start. Like you start in the moment because there's no stress in the moment. And one of the things that I tell people with anxiety issues is ask yourself this one question. Am I safe in this moment? Like in this moment right now, I'm not like with you, with your singing and that sort of stuff. You know, if you had a a gig that night in that moment at two o'clock in the afternoon when you're going, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, am I safe in this moment? Well, yeah, I'm safe in this moment. Well, this moment is all we ever have. And I know that sounds like a bit of a platitude, but it's a way of thinking am I safe in this moment? And can I be grateful for the moment that I'm in, that I'm not facing this thing that I am imagining in my own mind? Because your body reacts to an imagined threat as if it was really happening. So if you can say, am I safe in this moment and draw yourself repetitively back to the moment? And one of the ways I get people to do that is putting their thumb and their fourth fingertip together. And just focusing completely on the sensation. So if your listeners want to do this or you want to do this right now, it doesn't matter which hand you use. You can even use both. Put your thumb and the the tip of your fourth finger together, the pads of your fingers. Now focus just on that sensation, completely on that sensation. Now when you're anxious, your awareness will go to where your sensation is. If you don't give it a sensation, it will stick in your mind and like a Ferris wheel, it will just wind and wind and wind and wind. You'll get one problem kind of dealt with and another car will come in, another problem will come in. But if you focus just on sensation, you are forced to move into the moment. And there is no anxiety in the moment. Anxiety, like you said in one of your previous podcasts, and I listened to it a while ago, is all about the future. It's all about what I call the three W's, which are warnings, what ifs, and worst case scenarios. And I divide anxiety into two components. There's the anxious thoughts of the mind, which are not painful unless you believe them and unless you transport yourself to the future. And there's the alarm in the body. Now, the alarm in the body is what you talked about in one of your old podcasts about the the lingering anxiety I think you talked about. The lingering anxiety. That's the alarm that sits in your system. And the alarm is what we have to address. So getting back to your original question, like two or three minutes ago is what do I do first? First, you ground yourself in the body. You ground yourself in that finger thumb sensation. You draw your intention and you tell yourself in no uncertain terms, unconsciously and consciously, I am moving from this repetitive, never ending thought stream to a place of sensation. Because that takes some of that CPU, some of that brain power away from those thoughts, which are only hurting you. I remember years ago, I had a patient come in to see me and he had lost his wife to breast cancer. I think he was like early 50s. And he said to me, Dr. Kennedy, I, I, I'm so anxious. I'm just so anxious. I got to dig myself out of this hole. And I said, well, you can't dig yourself out of a hole. When you're in a hole, the first rule is stop digging. And when you're in alarm, when you're anxious, the first rule is to stop thinking because you can't think. What happens is that we sink back into the survival part of our brain, the part that's closest to the spinal cord, the part that that feeds our body, and our body gets all upset and it gets all worked up, that fight or flight response. So when that fight or flight response gets activated, we start seeing fear. And that's all we see. We lose our prefrontal cortex. We lose that front part of our brain that has rational thought that allows us to kind of go, hey, this isn't as big a deal as we think. So what we're trying to do when we're anxious is we're trying to convince ourselves that this isn't a real problem, but we don't have the rational part of our brain to be able to really resonate that this really isn't a problem. So all we're seeing is fear because we're in our survival brain. And when all you see is fear, it's like if you're being chased by a lion, you're not going to look at a tree and go, hey, that'd be a great tree for a tree fort. I think I could put some two by fours up there, maybe a carpet. You know, when you're in fear, all you see is fear. And the worst part about that is that you don't realize that you've lost your prefrontal cortex. You believe that your thought process when you're in alarm is an accurate view of reality. Mm-hmm. And that is the biggest place. So when you say coming back, where do you start? You start by grounding yourself in the moment, in sensation. And then once you get your prefrontal cortex back online, then you can start thinking. But I always say that when you're in alarm, thinking is poison. Thinking is just drinking seawater and trying to quench your thirst. 
Like you are not going to get to the place you need to go when you lose half your brain. So ground yourself first. Breathing is great. The other thing I love about um, yoga, I certified as a yoga teacher back in 2007. And what I love about yoga and probably even more with Qigong is that it matches your breathing with your movement. And that automatically joins your mind and your body together because I believe stress and anxiety fundamentally are a mind-body disconnect. When we are born, our mind and our body regulate each other. And when we go through traumatic experiences, like we were talking about the adverse childhood events, the mind and the body become dissociated. And what happens is the mind goes out of control with all these crazy thoughts and the body goes out of control with all this fight or flight. And they never join up because the mind is always going faster than the body. It's like trying to jump a railway train that's going 30 miles an hour. You're never going to run fast enough to catch it. So you have to slow everything down so your mind and body can join together. And that's why I think yoga works. And that's why I think Qigong works. And, you know, we get into this North American thing where yoga is now, it's, it's a form of exercise. It's power yoga. It's vinyasa, you know, so everybody's sweating and there's hot yoga and all this stuff. Basically, yoga was invented 5,000 years ago, I believe, to simply join the mind and body together. And that's what yoga means. The, the actual word means to join. So I know I kind of rambled on there a little bit, but really what you do is you join your mind and your body together. And when you join your mind and your body, you're invincible at that point. But when your mind and body are separated from each other, you can't think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, what's what's so powerful about that and what you kind of touched on before that really stood out for me because I've seen this in, in clients who are in high stress, you know, really high stress mode and and the anxiety starts to build up or, you know, they're, they're really stressed out and they just can't stop thinking is that they are trying to they're trying to stop thinking by thinking, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, I need, exactly. I need, I know I need to stop thinking, but how do I do that? And then that just that prompted question causes the mind again to go down that path of like, Oh, okay. So how do I stop thinking? Well, I don't know how to stop thinking because I'm the one that's thinking. And so it's just like this, it's this loop that, that it gets caught in and the recentering, the reconnecting back into the the sort of somatic mind into the body into the body mind is is something that's so 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 powerful uh, for people that have a high amount of stress and the cool thing that you brought up there as well just to kind of touch on you know this this idea of of yoga and reconnecting the mind and the body and the art of yoda yoga yoda <laughs> the art of yoga <laughs> really <laughs> really being about reconnecting the body with the breath is that that that's even what Tantra is about, you know, that, that uh, being able to reconnect our body with the breath, breath during, during sex, during intimacy, and that a lot of guys and a lot of the men that, that I've worked with that experience maybe performance issues, uh, or, or anxiety, uh, or performance anxiety, or just, you know, having problems when it comes to sexual intimacy, or even emotional intimacy, it's because they're cut off from the uh, from their breath, and they can't reconnect to their body. And so they're constantly in this state of, of self referencing, where they're going to be intimate with their partner, and they can't stop thinking. And that thinking is actually the thing that's taking them out of the moment. And when they can start to reconnect with their breath in their body, they can start to reconnect with intimacy properly. And so it's really interesting to see how a lot of these, I don't want to say solutions, but a lot of these things are, are universal, coming back to the breath, reconnecting with the body, and, and allowing ourselves to reconnect with this sort of deeper sense of, of wisdom. And, and I do want to come to this place where you and I can, can talk about uh, some very tangible, tactical things that people can do. And I think maybe that's how we'll sort of end the podcast is by, by giving some of those resources to people who, you know, want to, want to perform more optimally, whether they're suffering from high stress or anxiety, or they're just wanting to improve their cognitive abilities. So we'll definitely provide those towards the end of this podcast. But I want to kind of shift gears into, into neuroscience, into the field of neurology, sure. because I'm like, I, I'm, I'm so fascinated with this and how the brain works. And you have been in this space since, and I, don't, I almost like didn't want to give this away, but you've been in this space since 1987, which is just like... Right. When I started neuroscience, there, was, there weren't any brains. There was, we had to study rats. Yeah, yeah it's, it, I, 
you know, everybody, everybody tells me that I, I'm 57 now, but everybody tells me, man, you don't look 57. What are you doing? It, I'm amazed because the amount of cortisol and adrenaline that I've had running around in my system for the last 30 years of my own anxiety, I'm surprised that, that, you know, I look as young as I do at this point. But it's, it's funny that, it, you know, but I've, st- I got my original degree in 1987, but I have, st- I probably done 15 times more work than I did in my original degree on neuroscience since I graduated because I just love it so much. I went to the University of Western Ontario Medical School, which has the highest level of neurology in any medical school in Canada. I just love how the brain works because I love tinkering with it. And I think it really does come back to that 12-year-old watching his dad being loaded into the ambulance going, how does the brain work? Like, how, how can I stop this from happening? So, you know, one of the things that I quickly want to just touch on before we get into neuroscience is this thing. There's a little story about how they train military pilots and they put them all in a room and they slowly suck the oxygen out of the room. And each pilot will have his own kind of tell. Some people get a headache. Some people get a stomachache. Some people's hands start burning. And what they do is they say, okay, what's happening to you right now? And what is happening to you right now is your tell early enough that you are losing oxygen. And what they do is they get them to do like almost a spinal cord reflex where they flip their oxygen mask onto their face. It's just as soon as you feel that that first tingle in your hands or as soon as you feel that first little headache, you flip your oxygen mask into your face. Because if, if it goes another five or ten seconds, you lose – they lose the ability to comprehend that their oxygen is is coming low and they just – you know un, go unconscious and they become a 1G strafe target. So it's one of these things that we don't realize – when we're in alarm, because all we see is alarm at that point. So it's realize it's recognizing early what your tells are. You know, if you're talking to your partner and she says something like, I, I, I hate being told what to do. I've always hated being told what to do. And, uh, I, my, my Cynthia, my wife and I, we, we get into a little bit of not so much arguments anymore because we both know that I need to be attached to her before she can tell me what to do. And it's not like she's an authoritarian or anything like that, but this is from my childhood and I realize that's what it is. But I know when she starts saying, oh, you know, can you do this or can you do that? I know my counter will, which is a term um, Otto Rank came up with. He was a psychologist in, or psychologist, psychologist in Germany. And it's such a brilliant term. It's counter will. Like it's when you tell your kid, you know, put on your clothes. It's like, I'm not putting on my clothes. So I get this counter will, but I recognize it. I see it early. It's like, okay, so I have a choice at this point because the thing about counter will is it, is it doesn't give you a choice. But when you see that you're heading into alarm, if you see that you're heading into stress and you see you're heading into anxiety, and then you make that intention with your thumb and your finger together, you tell your brain unconsciously and consciously, I'm moving away from this. I am moving away from these repetitive thoughts and into sensation. And then when you get to that point, you're able to see things a lot more clearly. So it's learning how to recognize your own tells that you're heading into what I call hell early, and then you can just make a left turn. So you don't have to necessarily go in there. So when you talk about neuroscience, and one of the things that I love about neuroscience is this concept of the default mode network that we have in our brain. And this default mode network is what we default to when we're not thinking about something specific when we're not focused on something, when we have no intention. And what happens in the default mode network is all our old fears come up. There's a a structure called the posterior cingulate cortex in the back, sort of the back middle part of the brain. Just sort of if you put your fingers in both ears, it'd be just sort of under that on each side, uh, pretty deep in the brain. And what what it does is it's thought to be the neural substrate or focus for awareness. And Pain and episodic memory retrieval comes from the PCC. And part of the the PCC also modulates comparison to others, uh, shaming yourself, blaming yourself, what I call jabs, you know, judgment, alienation, blame, and shame. If you judge yourself, alienate yourself, blame yourself, shame yourself, it's probably your PCC working. And how do you how do you pull yourself out of that? Well, develop an intention. Put your I like this is the intention I use. I put my thumb and my fourth finger together, and I make that intention at that point that I'm going to move away from this thought. I'm going to take control of the default mode network so that I'm running your brain. It's like that old saying, you know, the mind is a wonderful servant but a terrible master. You know, so I'm in control now. The default mode network isn't running me. I'm running my mind. My mind isn't running me. 
And then getting back one step further is one of the best places to do that is using your breath, realizing I'm heading into anxiety, I'm heading into alarm. I'm going to use my breath. If I can match it with movement, even better, but use my breath to come into the moment and then bring myself out of this sort of alarm state and focus on my breath. Because as soon as you focus on something, you take that default mode network out of play. And the thing about the default mode network is the more emotional slush fund that you have, the more trauma you had as a child, the more stress you're under at the moment, the less resilient you are to pull yourself out of that default mode network. So the more you have to redouble your efforts at focusing on the moment, getting yourself into sensation and finding your own little way of pulling yourself into your breath, but into the present moment. And I know Eckhart Tolle talks about this. So many people talk about present moment awareness because what it does from a neuroscience point of view is it pulls you out of that old default mode network where you're comparing yourself to others. I should be doing this. I shouldn't be doing that. I should be doing better than I am. It pulls you out of that and it gives you control of your brain. And on top of that, it starts teaching you that you actually do have some control over this part of your brain that kind of brings up some of the old stories, the old traumas in your life that are going to likely fire you into alarm if you don't catch them early and you don't do something about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so powerful. I, you know, the, the, I mean, you covered some really powerful pieces in there, um, but really I, I would love to dive into the default mode network because this is something that I have been seeing coming up more and more in, in the last few years as you know studies are coming out and and showing you know what what's causing anxiety and and taking people out of the moment and it would seem to me that that uh you know things like the social media platforms really are probably not helpful for this default mode network because it sounds like the the default mode network is something that you know if if we're not consciously pulling ourselves back into the present moment and being very aware and grounded in in our spatial awareness that we can sort of be in this semi daydream like state where we're not super conscious of our actions and what we're doing and i think absolutely yeah and i, I think that social media like when you th- when i when i think about you know people that are just sitting there scrolling through they they don't really look super conscious or really focused or engaged and even when i think about myself I, i'll catch myself even now sometimes just scrolling through and i'm not actually looking at anything you know there's my awareness actually isn't really there at all it's kind of like this this daydream that's sort of happening in the in the present moment so can you can you speak a little bit to that and then i would love to get into how we can start to um, pull ourselves and optimize this this default mode mode network. Okay, well, I guess the thing that I notice about social media is that if you're in the default mode network, which a lot of people are, is that whatever your mood is at the time, if you're feeling angry, you're going to start, you know, finding something on, and it's easy to find on Facebook that you disagree with, and then you're going to go to town on it, and then before you know it, you wasted 45 minutes arguing with this person that you don't know that you have no connection with really, but because you're in default, because for whatever reason, you know, you didn't get the attention you needed as a child, or you don't give your yourself the attention you need now, which is one of the reasons you're probably just dawdling along on Facebook, is that when we ignore ourselves, when we ignore this level of consciousness, this awareness that's always around us, we lose touch with who we are and our old traumas start to come up. And in a way, it's, it's like Freud talked about this, the, the repetition compulsion, you know, choosing the same partner over and over again, doing the same negative thing over and over again, because there's some part of that default mode network that is engaged, that is putting us back into, say, a porn addiction or alcoholism or whatever. Now, a lot of these things do have a physiological component to them as well, but that default mode network, when, you know, that the idol, what are they saying? This saying is, uh, idle hands of the devil's playground, you know, that's the default mode network. So whatever our old traumas are will come up at the time. And not if you're feeling good, if you're feeling good, the default mode network may kick in and it may sort of, you may be able to sort of kick yourself out of there pretty fast and just be happy in general. But if you're feeling negative, which we do more and more in the society, that's going to just get further and further ingrained in us. And one of the things that I noticed is I have um, two stepsons, one who's 20 now and one who's 14. But the 14-year-old, Michael, like he loves his screens and we have to really monitor his screens because 
we are we aren't getting an activation. Here's another neuroscience concept of the social engagement system. Dr. Stephen Porges, who invented the polybagel theory, talks about this. We need the social engagement system to connect and to calm ourselves. So when there's some, I, I think there was a story with you and when you were going to go on stage before Gary Vee and then Vienna came up to you and said, hey, you know, are you here? Are you present? And it's like, you know, yes, I am. I'm good or whatever. But you're not. You know, that social engagement system that I'm sure you have with her and, you know, and a deep connection with her in general, because you were in alarm mode, you, were, you weren't able to be able to connect with her at the level that you normally would, which we don't when we're in fear, when we're in that survival brain, that social engagement system isn't active. Mm -hmm. And that social engagement system is what draws us into awareness. It what's just make, makes us feel safe as human beings. It's what we needed as children from our parents, you know, that eye contact, body language, tone of voice, all that stuff is really important to calm you. But when you're deep in alarm, here's, here's the part of the human condition. When you're in alarm, you resist that human social engagement system. I know when I'm in alarm, I have a hard. My wife will say, you, "You, you're having a hard time meeting my eyes." You know, I know that you're alarmed right now because you can't look at me directly. And this is part of a fault in our wiring, in a way, is that the very thing that we need the most is to connect on that social engagement system level is offline to us at that point. And that's why I come back to getting into the body, getting yourself focused on your breath, focus on the moment, and then that social engagement system will come back online and then you can connect with someone and then you can use it. So getting back to this thing about the kids is there's no boredom anymore. You know, when I was a kid, there was boredom. If you, if you were at a table of four people and someone didn't know the other actor that Kevin Bacon was in, in Footloose, <laughs> you're screwed. No, there, there's, yeah, they, that's it. You know, it's like, that was the end of the conversation. You know, you could go and phone someone, I guess, but that was it. There was no, okay, I'll Google it and have the answer in 10 seconds. So the kids now don't have any real need to go into a creative mode because there's no boredom anymore. But by the same token, there's no social engagement system in this interaction that we have on the computer. We don't, I think, I think Skype has it to a certain extent when you are face to face with someone, but in general, you really have to be in their present. And Dr. Dan Siegel talks about this. He talks about feeling felt. So you feel like this other person feels you, gets you, knows you, you know, and in that there is a certain level of calming in these, in the nervous system that calms down. You're, you go into parasympathetic nervous system, your prefrontal cortex comes back online, you start thinking more clearly. And it's kind of like that thing where, have you ever thought a thought and then two hours later thought the same thought? And it was like, well, why did I get so upset about that? Like, why did, because anxiety and alarm are a state. So when we're in that state, everything is clouded. There's a certain confirmation bias, which I've heard, I've also heard you talk about. When you're in fear, you will look at, for evidence of the reason why you should be in fear. And your brain being a compulsive, make sense machine will find that reason. And when it finds that reason, because it found it, it believes it. And one of the things about fear, one of the things about anxiety is, and anxious thoughts is you need two things for them, for them to work. You need to be transported mentally into the future because virtually all anxious thoughts are future-based. And then you have to believe those thoughts when you get there. So, you know, here's another little story that I tell. If I have a 16-year-old guy in my office and I say, hey, Steve, you're pregnant, he's going to look at me like, are you nuts? You know, but if I have a 16-year-old female in my office and I say, hey, Stephanie, I think you're pregnant, she may just freak out because there's part of her that believes that thought. But he can't believe that thought because he knows it's not true. So in the male case, there's no stress there because he didn't believe the thought. But in the female case, because she believes the thought, she gets into all this stress. So if we don't believe the thought, easier said than done, granted. But we have a choice as to whether or not we believe these thoughts or not. But the problem is when we're deep in alarm brain, we don't see that. You know, We're looking for reasons why we're alarmed and we're going to find them. Now, that was, again, a rambling kind of answer, but the social engagement system is what I'm talking about. I think that's why we have so much of a problem with anxiety in children these days. I have so many of my friends who have teenagers that call me and say, what am I going to do about my daughter? She's just, she won't go to school. She's all this thing. And it's, it's like, you really have to re-engage that social engagement system and move them away from their screens because it's almost like drinking seawater again. They, they go, they feel lonely. They feel disconnected. So they go to social media to get connection, but it's this pseudo connection. 
And the definition of addiction is getting a little hit of something, but no long lasting satisfaction. So they keep going to social media to get this little hit, little hit, little hit, little hit, little hit. But there's no, there's no resonance there. Mm -hmm. There's no safety there. And of course, they're going to get more and more anxious. So I know, again, I drifted off, which is what I do. Probably the worst podcast guest. No, no, this is uh, is really great information. Yeah. So that's, and you know, I I heard a term the other day, and I think it's a movie too called Screenagers, because they're all, they're all hooked on, there's, there's no boredom anymore. And boredom is the basis of creativity. When you're bored, it's like, okay, well, I've got to do something to entertain myself. And if there's no creativity, there's no anxiety. If you look at Ayurvedic medicine, you know, the, the medicine of ancient India, they believe that anxiety is a result of a lack of creativity. Hmm. That's what they believe that anxiety comes from. And I, I think all anxiety is separation anxiety. And that's another, you know, long sort of, uh, you know, podcast topic. But I, I think it's separation from yourself. You know, you, we separate from ourselves. We, we judge, we alienate, we blame, we shame ourselves. And when we do that, we become separate from ourselves. And when we're separate from ourselves, how are you supposed to help yourself if you're divided? You just, you can't do it. So you have to bring yourself together in the moment, start looking at some of the real positive points, start looking at really feeling grateful for the great points about you. And I know this is sounding like a bit of a motivational speech, but in someone who's dealt with anxiety for 30 years, this is what you have to do. You have to connect with yourself because you can't fix anxiety or stress if you're divided from yourself. Yeah. So, so very true. And it's, and it's interesting because you hit on some really valuable points there. And, you know, just one of the pieces about, about kids being screenagers. And, you know, we were out for, for dinner the other day with friends of ours that have, uh, a four-year-old, and she's not allowed to to touch uh, technology at all. She can watch some TV, awesome. some TV shows, like she can watch Sesame Street and Mister Rogers and stuff like that. But she's not like they don't even take their phone out when she's around because they don't want her to be glued on this technology. But it was what was really interesting was that there was a table next to us, and there was like a nine-year-old kid, and. And at dinner, this kid has got the iPad Pro in front of him, this big 12 and a half inch display with headphones on playing video games the entire time. He orders without looking at the waitress. And and it was so interesting to see the lack of social engagement that was happening with this one child. And then with the child that was at our table... You know, when when she asked for her pasta or what I think she ordered spaghetti, uh, you know, her father said, make sure you look at make sure you look at the waitress and say thank you. And so, you know, she's learning these like really valuable social cues and social skills. And to go back to your point, I mean, so much suffering, whether it's stress, whether it's anxieties is coming from separation and it's coming from that space of, of feeling disconnected. And, and I think that a lot of the thoughts that people experience in those, in those spaces, if they really start to tune into what the thoughts are, that a lot of the thoughts are coming from a space of, of separation. What will they think of me? What will happen if this doesn't go through? What if I fail? It's, it's all, all of those thoughts are coming from the modality of separation of what if I am in some way shape or form disconnected or not plugged into someone else or something else? What if I'm not loved and accepted? And and it's so interesting because when we know that we can come back to the present moment. And like you said, we can start to reconnect, whether that's physically or emotionally with somebody else and be able to just, you know, even with our partner, do something as simple as make eye contact. And, and it's interesting mm-hmm. because my fiance is a marriage and family therapist and we see couples together. And, and it's interesting sometimes to just have a couple who's going through conflict sit and face each other without saying anything, sync up their breath, maintain eye contact and, and see how quickly their entire physiology just changes and then how quickly their conversation changes. Because most of the time when we get into conflict, we're reaffirming our position. We're reaffirming our, our separation from the other person. And we're trying to prove our point or get our point across or be heard or whatever it is. And it creates more and more and more separation. And then we're not looking at the other person and we're looking away and we just don't even want to acknowledge their presence. And so we're reaffirming that separation, which causes more stress and more anger and more frustration. And so it's really interesting to see some of the core causalities of some of these things that we're talking about. And so 
Um, so that was my ramble. But I want to take us back to the default mode network. Are are you saying that that you're separating from yourself when you go into the default mode network, or what's actually happening internally when when we go into the default mode network? That's a really interesting observation, Connor. Um, are we separating from ourselves when we go into the default mode network? I don't think we do it consciously. I think it's something, depending on how stressed you are, that you fall into unconsciously. Because these things, the, the default mode network carries a lot of your old your old past negative programming. And, and I don't think we go into that consciously. But when you're in it and then you realize, okay, I'm in it, I'm in the soup, how do I consciously come out of the default mode network? And that's things like getting in the moment. The mindfulness is all about basically at its core moving you out of the default mode network and into the moment. So if you're all of a sudden washing the dishes and you're paying every attention to the soap on your fingers and the steel of the knives, you know, you're not in the default mode network anymore because you've focused specifically on something. And when we focus specifically on something, it takes us out of that sort of black hole of our problems or our old uh, patterns and we get into a new place where we actually feel like we have some agency or control over where that emotion is going to go. And that's basically why mindfulness works, because we have taken ourselves out of that default default mode network by definition, because we are not just letting our brains daydream in that default mode. So now we are actually consciously putting it onto something. And when we consciously put our attention onto something, specifically the moment, like our breath, like matching body to movement, then we move into a different realm and away from those old negative programs. Mm, I like it. I like it. And and tell me a little bit more about like what causes us to go into the default mode network. Because I think that, you know, from... From my understanding, you know, technology can sometimes put us into that space and we have these sort of habitual responses that that will put us into this sort of daydreaming state even even when we're awake. And so what are some of the things that can sort of put us into that space? Well, when we're in alarm, you know, when our body is in alarm. There is this fear bias that our brains have to protect us. I mean, they've been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to protect us. So when we get into this alarm, we start thinking, okay, well, what do we have to be alarmed about? And then we go into our past and dig out all this crap that we've developed over the course of of years that are kind of our fears, our biggest fears. And when we get into that, it, it kind of redoubles its effort to keep you in that default network. So it's very sticky. Um, when you're feeling good and when you're, you know, going around town and you're riding your bike and it's a sunny day or whatever, there's not a whole lot of default network pro- processing that's going on, or at least the negative aspects of it. But when you're feeling negative, your brain is just a make sense. It's a compulsive make sense, meaning making machine. So if you're feeling alarm in your body, that default network will say, hey, what do we have to feel alarmed about? And it'll go back into your past or it'll go back into something that you're worried about and then it'll bring that up and then you'll get caught inside that default network loop. And then when you're caught in that loop, it's very hard to get out of it. And it's, a lot of it is just recognizing that you're in it. And once you recognize that you're in it, then you can bring yourself back out of it by using, you know, coming into the moment, mindfulness techniques and that's that's why mindfulness works really i believe i mean people have different theories but i believe mindfulness works because it pulls you out of that you know that bad end of town that we call the default mode network and it puts you into a place where you decide where you want to go so when you once you're focused once your brain is focused then it pulls you out of that old mental loop that has been driven by this alarm that's in your system. So the more alarm is in your system, or the more you're worried about something, the more likely you're going to go back into that default network. Yeah, that, I mean, that makes so much sense. And it, and it makes sense that we, I would imagine that we have these like trigger points that put us into that, you know, default mode network, you know, like stress or overwhelm or you know, certain, certain yeah, not sleeping is probably another big one, right? And then we, you know, our thoughts, I would imagine there's probably certain trigger thoughts that each of us have that would put us into that space, right? So we'll have a thought around like, oh, 
you know, I didn't get a good sleep last night. If, you know, if, if somebody's out there that has problems sleeping and then that can probably, does that activate the default mode network that then takes us sort of off on this sort of, you know, internal ranting of like all the potential things that could happen? Because it seems to me that we have these thoughts that are sort of trigger points that activate the default mode network and take us into this unconscious space of then worrying and and projecting into the future. Yeah, I think we make these little super highways in our brains that are, you know, our worst fears a lot of the time. And it's an easy group. That group has been cut so deeply. Not saying the default mode network carries all our old unconscious negative programming, but it certainly can act as the entryway into that. And it's, it's certainly when the brain is searching around looking for something negative, it'll find it in default mode network. So it, it'll, it'll drive you into it. And unless you're aware of it, and it's like, okay, this is where I'm going again. How can I get myself out of it? But the trouble is when you're in alarm, you don't really have a whole lot of awareness. By definition, you've gone into survival brain. So you've lost about three quarters of your processing capacity because now you're just trying to survive. And when you're just trying to survive, you can't think properly. So I, I usually tell people when they're in alarm, stop thinking. When you can, If you can stop thinking because what happens with the default mode network and alarm together when they're mixed together is they become this, this resonating circuit. And the thoughts drive the alarm in the body and the alarm drives the thoughts. So you get caught in this, you know, feeling, thinking loop. And what you have to do is stop thinking at that particular point, which is really difficult because it's so, our brains are so designed to try and come up with a solution all the time. So when we try and tell ourselves, stop thinking about this, that actually becomes a source of stress. So it's too hard to actually stop your thoughts. I don't believe you can actually stop thoughts. But what you can do is divert those thoughts into something more productive, say sensation or breath or focus or specifically, and that's what I keep coming back to, coming into the moment. Because once you come into the moment, then you've taken yourself out of that pathway and into a pathway that now you control. And then you, it makes it easier to kind of come back to that place again. So that's why mindfulness practice winds up, you get better and better at it. So you get, you recognize you're in default earlier, or you recognize you're in an old neural pathway that's not good for you earlier. And then you can see, okay, how do I get out of this? It's like, well, I'll focus on my breath, or I'll focus on a little bit of yoga or a little bit of Qigong or whatever you're doing at that particular point in time. And that takes you out of it. So it's not like you can say, okay, default mode, ne- default mode network, I'm going to leave you now. You, you know, that's another thought. And the thoughts are just going to keep track. So what you have to do is move it into action, move it into feeling, specifically feeling in your body. And once you get into that feeling, it's a lot easier just to slip out of that default mode network. And when you, you focus on breath and you focus on sort of relaxing your muscles, you're doing something that is the opposite of what the default mode network is dragging you back into. So Mm. A, you're consciously taking effort and agency over it. And B, you're doing something that, that prevents you from falling back into it again. Yeah. Nice. Nice. I think that's great. And, and just to clarify, cause I think, you know, we're, we're talking about some of the mechanisms and the, and the, the sort of structure of the default mode network and how it operates I think it could it can maybe from a, a peripheral from an outsider perspective seem like a bad uh, a bad thing because it takes us away from the present moment. So, does the default mode network play an important role in in terms of like what are the sort of what are the upsides of the default mode network and and can we actually leverage it for uh, for our own benefit in some way? Well, I I think what happens is we hold a lot of old unconscious negative programming in there. And unless we go in there and move it around, so say you're afraid of spiders and they do this in systematic desensitization, they slowly expose you to like a picture of a spider and then maybe a plastic spider. And then, so being exposed to your particular negative, I don't want to say qualities, but negative programming allows you to change it. So it's not like you never want to go into the default mode network again, 
because you want to be able to go in there and perhaps associate that old program with something more positive. So, you know, the default mode network allows you to see what your programs are, and then you can do some different things like somatic experiencing or breath work or something like that while you're focused on that negative program. So you change the, the level of intensity that that program holds. So in a way, it's opening the door to your worst fears, but unless you do that and then find a way of what Dr. Peter Levine calls pendulating, which is moving between something that's hurting you and something that feels good. So, and mindfulness is kind of like this, so that you, all of a sudden you think about, oh, I hate, uh, I've got social anxiety. I, I have a party tonight. I can't, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle it. This is going to be the worst thing ever. And then you do five minutes of conscious breathing. And then you kind of think about it again. And then you do some more breathing and you think, so you go back and forth between the stress in the default mode network and this conscious breathing. And all of a sudden it loses a lot of its charge because now you've given it something more positive to work on as opposed to just when you're not conscious of it, it just keeps running that program and the program gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. I, I really appreciate us- that. It gives us yeah. an access point is basically to your, your, your fears and traumas. Otherwise, they just sit in there and, and were around and don't really change very much. Yeah, so good. Because I, I mean, I think that, you know, most of us and many people aren't getting the results that they want. They're not, they're not getting the, the sort of focus that they want in certain areas of their life and, and maybe can't seem to figure out why. But if they start looking at the sort of unconscious automatic processes that are going on, like these trigger points that we've been talking about where, you know, you feel stressed and all of a sudden this unconscious process will start to happen or you feel anxiety in your body. And rather than feeling fully into it, this unconscious process starts to happen. It takes you away from that feeling. And, and that's because like you're saying, these, you know, this, this trauma stored in there and, and all of these different, uh, all these different pieces and parts are stored in the default mode network. So being able to understand it and how to tap into it and then how to course correct is, is really important. So, you know, I think on, on that note, what are some of the tools that, that people need to know? specifically, I, you know, specifically, I guess, around how to deal with anxiety, how to tap into the default mode network, like, let's just kind of go through these uh, piece by piece. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I, I don't e- even really like the term anxiety. I think it's a very nebulous term. I think it means about a 1000 different things to a 1000 different people. So usually, when I see patients or people that are struggling with anxiety, I get them to call it alarm. Because that's what it really is. It's a sense of alarm that's held in the body. And then the anxiety, I call the anxiety the anxious thoughts. So it's really the alarm that's in the body that fuels those anxious thoughts. So the biggest, the number one tip I can give anybody is to start really feeling where your alarm is. Like if you're really upset about, you know, making your rent this month or whether or not you're going to lose your job, try and find that in your body because usually it's somewhere between kind of your chin and your pubic bone. It's usually almost always midline and find it. it feels like pressure or pain or heat or something. There is a sense of alarm that's held in our bodies that most people can, can access. And then usually I get people put, just put your hand on that part that feels upset or it feels tight. And just because your awareness will go where your sensation goes. So if you draw sensation to that, that alarm, and just touching it gives you that sense of connection because I do believe that that alarm, all it's calling out for is attention. All it's calling out for is some compassion. It's just calling out for some contact or connection. And the anxious thoughts are really just the byproduct of that alarm. So if you can soothe the alarm, and this is why I talk a lot about matching breath with movement and uh, things like Qigong, yoga, um, anything that kind of calms that alarm matches your mind and your body together. Cause I do feel that a lot of our stress is because our mind and our body become dysregulated. They become out of connection. So our mind goes out of control with all these crazy hypervigilant thoughts. And then our body goes out of control with not sleeping and not eating properly. So the whole thing just becomes completely dissociated from each other. 
And when your body and your mind are dissociated, you can't pull yourself into a state of calmness. So that's the first thing. Matching breath with movement is great. Any kind of movement is actually really good. Dance is great. Play is fantastic. You know, anything that gets you moving, gets your mind and your body connected, because when your mind and body are connected, you're in a solid framework to actually go after some of those negative, those negative pathways, those negative things that your brain tells you. And you're in a, you're in a structured place. You're in a place where you feel grounded already. Then you can go after these things and kind of go back and forth between the positive and the negative and change them a little bit. But that it's that alarm that I think we're really missing in North American society. We think that we can solve everything cognitively with, with talk therapy. And I'm certainly not against talk therapy. I think human beings need to speak the words. They need to get that out in front of them so that they can develop this coherent story, this coherent narrative that allows your brain to integrate that story so it doesn't create so much charge anymore. So part of it is just, you know, realizing that it's not anxiety you have. It's not stress per se. It's a sense of alarm. There's something that's gone off in your system that is somehow triggering you to an earlier time in your life or a time where you felt out of control. And it's, it's a matter of trying to put your hand on that area because that area could actually be your younger self that was abandoned or abused or whatever and paying some attention to that because Say you have a child who comes up to you and they're in distress. Would you push that child away? No. What you would do is try and, you know, try and pull them up in your arms, cuddle them, whatever you need to do. Give that alarm some attention, like connect with that sense of alarm so it calms down. And that's the foundation of everything. That's the foundation of stress. If you can calm your own alarm, mm. the anxious thoughts are just the byproduct of that. And then once your alarm system's calmed down, then you can get back into the social engagement system we were talking about earlier, where you're actually able to get feedback and loving connection between you and your partner. It was that that story that you told about you and Vienna when you were about to talk at Gary Vee and you were all kind of completely fractured, you were out of your social engagement system. You weren't grounded. And had you been grounded at that point, then you and Vienna probably, she probably could have regulated your nervous system a lot better. So the number one tip I see for, for people who are in anxiety is separate the alarm from the thinking. The thinking is compulsive. Your, your brain is going to want to make sense out of the alarm. And when you do that, you just make the alarm stronger. The alarm feeds off your thoughts. So if you can stop thinking, and what I said earlier, you can't actually stop thinking, but you can re-divert that energy into breath process or something else, then if you don't give it thoughts anymore, that alarm has to just fade away and die down. But the problem is most people try and outthink them, outthink their alarm. And all you're doing when you think is just creating more alarm because you're only operating on that one quarter of your brain that is in survival mode. And you can't think anyway in that, in that mode. So stop thinking, start feeling, get grounded into your body. And then when you realize you're in a, in an old program, in an old wound, then you know, go into some sense of mindfulness, some sense of I'm going to take control over this. I'm going to put my hand on my alarm. I'm going to breathe. I'm going to, I'm going to, I can control the focus of my mind. And so that my, my mind doesn't control me. So that's the short version. I know I rambled quite a bit there, but really, if I could tell you one thing, it's to separate that sense of alarm in your body from the thinking. And if you can cut it off from thoughts the alarm will just die down naturally. And if you can add breath work and something like yoga, Qigong, something like that to it, it will, it will calm down even faster. But it's the alarm that's the problem. It's not, it's not the anxious thoughts. We, we worship thinking in our society, and that is not the problem. Thoughts are the tip of the iceberg. The actual problem is the eight-ninths of the iceberg, which is the sense of alarm that's lodged in your body. Deal with that first, and the anxious thoughts will go away. Wonderful, yeah, that's that's so good. And I, you know, I think it's it's interesting, right? Because one of the things that you're that you're talking about and sort of pointing out is being able to understand these systems that we often want to avoid, right? Being able to understand you know, how it feels in our body when, when anxiety or stress is present, how it feels within our body when, you know, different 
different emotions are present that we would normally want to avoid because they're uncomfortable right. because they because they you know bring us the just the thought of them kind of stresses us out even more it's like oh i'm stressed oh i'm anxious and then just that awareness tends to bring more uh, tends to bring more stress and anxiety. But when we have the tools to actually turn and face it and start to move through it, it, it doesn't sort of control us as much. And sort of understanding how that system works in the first place is very important. So I appreciate you uh, unpacking that for us today. And, you know, just everything that that you really brought to the table. Um, in, in terms of I know that you've got a, a course that that just came out. So um, where can people go to, to learn a little bit more about you and learn a little bit more uh, about the about the course that you've released around anxiety and stress? Yeah, if they look up the anxiety MD, you can Google that and my Facebook page will come up, my YouTube page comes up, my website page will come up as far as that goes. I have a masterclass in anxiety for people who are really, really interested in finding out the neuroscience behind it and if they're if they're just fed up with their anxiety but it does create uh, it, you do have to put some some effort and some work into it um, i'm also creating a course for children because i i hear from a lot of my colleagues and a lot of my friends it's, you know my daughter has anxiety she's not going to school she's not eating she's not and it's such a frustrating enterprise for parents because they really don't know what to do. And if you look online, there's so many things that are actually conflicting. And the treatment is really the same as getting the kids into their body, getting them getting them grounded first and showing them ways that they're connected to themselves so that their mind and body are connected. And then they're connected to you because I, I do believe that all anxiety is basically separation anxiety, separation from either their caregivers or separation from themselves. Like I was saying, their mind and body have become disconnected. So I teach the same kind of things. And, and the parents that I've shown these techniques to, um, it really helps them because a lot of anxious parents have anxious kids. So that's what I'm working on next. And they can all be found. All this stuff can be found on my Facebook page, uh, The Anxiety MD. Amazing. Wonderful. Yeah. Thanks so much, Russell. And for everybody that's out there, definitely check it out. Uh, it's a great, great resource. And Russell knows exactly what he's talking about. He's done a lot of work in this field, as I'm sure you can tell from this episode. Uh, if you enjoyed this, don't forget to man it forward, share it with just one person. It goes a long way. Uh, I'm sure that you, we all know somebody that's got stress. We all know somebody that's got anxiety. So definitely pass this podcast episode on to them, help support them in their journey and healing. And uh, don't forget to like and subscribe through iTunes, Google Play, through Spotify, whatever platform you listen to us on. And until next week, join me for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. This is Connor Beaton signing off. We'll see you soon. Mm-hmm.